Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. You're listening to DNA ID, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including Scene of the Crime, The Murder in My Family, Malice, Missing Persons, and Three Men and a Mystery. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. I'm now going to play an interview with Paul Holes, the biochemist turned forensic scientist and investigator, who, in 2018, pioneered the use of genetic genealogy in crime solving to break open the infamous Golden State Killer case. We spoke about this exciting new tool being employed to crack cold cases and the role it plays in modern law enforcement. Just a warning, Paul and I did this interview via Zoom, and unfortunately, some of the audio is glitchy and hard to hear. It improves after the first few minutes, so I hope you stick with it. Thanks so much to Paul for doing this interview with me. With me today is biochemist turned investigator Paul Holes, who pioneered the use of genetic genealogy in crime solving to break open the infamous Golden State Killer case. Yeah, well, you know, I, I did get my biochemistry, but then worked as a forensic scientist, you know, for many years. And so that the you know, a, a broad background in the various scientific disciplines that are used to solve crimes. And that ended up coming into uh, play quite a bit when I was marching down on, you know, trying to figure out who Golden State Killer was. And, you know, having that science background, but now as an investor, I was able to kind of see something on the genealogy front. I recognized pretty quickly this is extraordinary um, and ended up marching down and I just, you know, met the right people who helped, you know, form the team that ultimately solved the killer. You know, we, we identified Joseph D'Angelo that way. Right. Um, and that is sort of the case to which all other cases subsequent are compared. Technology tool that is being used to solve cases. First, utilizing Golden State Killer, seeing so many cases solved using it, is actually quite different than what probably think in terms of how it works. You know, everybody hears the term genetic genealogy, and somehow law enforcement is looking at genetic information of all these people, genealogy databases, and, and, and that couldn't be further from Fundamentally, the, the first step in, a, in employing the, the genealogy is you have to get 
your effect DNA profile, you know, DNA that he's left behind at a crime scene or, you know, inside a victim. Develop a different type of DNA profile than what is used by law enforcement. Law enforcement uses this STR technology. That's what this CODIS system is built upon. The GE side uses what's called a SNP DNA profile, SNPs and for single nucleotide polymorphism. And it's a type of DNA that hundreds of thousands of single points across the entire genome. So the first step is to, I've got DNA, I don't know who he is, but I've got his DNA that he left at the crime scene and get SNP profile developed. Then it's uploading that SNPL to look for individuals within a genealogy that share DNA with your offender. So that's, of course, the, the uh, most utilized is GEDmatch, which is this you know, public-facing type of uh, genealogy. So once the offender's SNP profile is up in the genealogy database, then you you get about that. Now I've got a list of of individuals share DNA, and because they share DNA, they're considered relative, but typically they're, they're distant relatives, third, fourth, fifth cousins. Now this is at this point this is very much somebody who's trying to pursue their own genealogy. You know, they send their saliva to Ancestry.com, and now they're starting to get, you know, the messages from Ancestry, oh, we found a third, you know, and that way you can start fleshing out your genealogy. The way that this genealogy tool works is different. Now what I need to do is I need to triangulate. I am trying to find common ancestors between my offender, my unknown, and people that are in this list. And the way to do that is to triangulate from the list. So typically, you know, the person that shares the most A is, you know, at the number one slot, then the next person's in the number two slot. At this point, genealogists take this list and then build those individuals' family trees back in time. And you're looking for is to find where two of that list can be triangulated back to their ancestor, saying, oh, uh, person one and person number 10 off this list actually share great-great-grandparents. Now, there's some technicalities, but and theoretically, that if once I find those common between two of the people off the list, then my offender is also a descendant of those concepts. So at this point, now that I've identified, let's say, great-great-grandparent, now everything else is just kind of set aside, and descendants from those great-great-grandparents are identified. And this tree now kind of goes, it gets bottom heavy because as I go from, let's say, the 1840s to current day, I'm now adding, you know, kids 
for each generation until I get you know, many of these descendants identified as possible. And then once I get into the kind of the, the generation in which my offender is likely born, now it's identifying those individuals that ha have circumstances that might add up to their involvement in the case. And it's that, at this point, that is just straight investigations. So even though this has been termed a genetic genealogy technique, the only time I'm really doing anything with DNA is with the offender's DNA and that initial search in the genealogy database. But I never access anybody's genetic information in that database. I just see, oh, this person shares 50 centimorgans, a unit of measurement of DNA with the person I'm looking for. And so that just tells me how far back in time I need to build their family tree. Let's say they're a third cousin. Well, that, that person is related to my offender at the great-great-grandparent. So that tells me how far back in time I need to build that person's tree to ensure that I, they share a common ancestor with my offender. So then that gives you a name or a group of names. And what we've seen is that in many cases, they, you know, the genealogists will say, well, I think it's one of three brothers, say, right? So what I've seen right. is that this is often co considered by law enforcement to be, it's referred to as a tip or a lead, right? Um, yes. So it's up to law enforcement then to pursue that. Right. And, and so what ends up happening you know, let's say there is a small group of animals that possibly fall into this this pool of people that suspects, if you will. Now it is okay. Who who of these individuals makes sense to being our offender? Is there any way we can prioritize? Oh, this person was in the town where the homicide occurred on the date that it occurred. It matches the description of maybe, you know, somebody who saw a strange man walking by. That person now is like, well, okay, let's go see if we can get a DNA sample from that person. And does it match the DNA from the case using traditional DNA testing? Right. You know, no arrest should ever be done off of a genealogy result. It right. always should resort back to the fundamental court-proven technology. Right. So that is one thing that I find intriguing is this concept of sort of the stakeout and you guys sitting outside. I know you sat outside the Golden State Killer's house. I, you know, I've heard about, here's an example. The, the first case I'm covering is the case of Jody Loomis in, in Washington State. Um, I don't know if you know the case, but they tracked down the killer pool to one of five brothers, okay? Two were deceased, so that ruled them out. Two had developmental issues, so, oh, I'm sorry, six brothers. And then that left two, and one had a criminal record of sexual assault. So they, they followed that guy first, right? He discarded a coffee cup in a trash can at a casino, and they were watching and waiting. And it went, well, it turned out it was him. So my question is, how does that work in terms of obtaining that sample and, and keeping the chain of custody 
intact. I mean, if it's, if a guy throws a cigar out the window or a piece of gum and you scoop it up, you've seen the entire process. But if he puts a cup in the trash or you gather his trash from his house, how do you back up that that's really where the origin of it, the DNA came from? Right. Well, so, you know, when, when it comes to that type of surreptitious sample, you know, we always want the on-viewed sample. That, that is the best. So when you do see the guy discard the cigarette butt, and that's the only cigarette butt in the area when you go to, to pick it up, I mean, you've got confidence. And so now if I'm uh, articulating probable cause to a judge, I can say I personally saw this cigarette, this guy smoking this cigarette, and he discarded the butt, and I personally collected it, or my associate collected it. Right. But you do have commingled samples. It does add a uh, a layer of um, what do you want to say vagueness, if you will, to the direct association of that sample to the person that you're investigating. However, because of the, the type of DNA testing done by law enforcement, this STR testing, the profile is so unique in terms of it, it basically is an identification. So let's say under your hypothetical in a casino, you've got five different coffee cups in there and you can't right. say one of those came from the person. Um, of course, you can do DNA testing on all five. And most certainly, if you have one of those five match your evidence, you go, okay, well, you know, that is huge because that's not going to happen. So right. we limit the, this down to that five. Now, I'd probably also pursue processing on those cups to identify, did that cup handled by, you know, my person that I'm interested in and that database. However, if one of those five cups comes out with the DNA profile from my killer, and I see this guy deposit that similar cup crash can, that gives me information that can then articulate to a judge. And, you know, it's sort of like, okay, here, here's the scenario, judge. You know, I've got this situation. I've got five cups. And you always present exculpatory details in, you know, whatever affidavit you're doing, whether it be an arrest affidavit or a search warrant, whatever. So, however, considering that one of five actually matched this unique profile, and I saw this guy dump a similar coffee cup in that very trash can. So he's one of those, you know, the source of one of those five cups. Right. It adds weight to that statement. Now, you always get once, let's say, there is enough circumstantial information plus this DNA in order for a judge to sign an arrest warrant. Okay. Once that person's taken into custody, now you get a direct sample from him immediately. Right. And then that's tested. And if it matches, you're, you're good. If it doesn't match, then you've got a weird thing going on because then <laughs> whoever put one another cup in there is right. your kid. <laughs> okay. All right. So, yes, that's perfect. That explains that. So, and then once you get the guy under arrest, you get the sample. Now, it seems to me that some of this comes down to, sadly, a little bit of luck. Um, again, in the Jody Loomis case, the first one I'm covering, um, samples from her autopsy were, were lost. Okay, mm -hmm. so vaginal swabs, gone. 
all the all swabs gone and her clothing was lost. I mean, it's just mind boggling. Anyway, so after 30 years, they discovered a tiny drop on one of her boots, which they still had, and it was sealed in plastic. The drop ended up being semen and they got the guy. It it's luck, right? Yes. I mean, it, and the DNA was preserved properly through luck because they didn't have DNA back then. Do you want to speak a little bit to that? Well, you know, I've been involved in a ton of cold cases and I've run into this scenario with evidence uh, being destroyed either purposefully or due to, you know, a a freezer, you know, malfunction, uh, storm hits and the property room is flooded, fires happen. Uh, So there's so many different things over the decades that could impact what evidence remains today. And it is so frustrating, you know, when I read a case and it's like, oh, it's vaginal semen. You know, I've seen this time and time again. I'm absolutely confident that semen was from the offender. But the pathologist, after he took the swab and said, yep, there's semen there, he threw the swab away. And it's like, this case could have been solved 20 years ago, you know, if that pathologist had just kept that evidence. But back in the 1970s, you know, they didn't, they really couldn't do much outside of identify that semen was present. So there are cases in which the luck has run out, unfortunately. The, the evidence that could have been used to solve the case has been lost or destroyed for one reason or another. Um, I, when I, consult on these cold cases. Sometimes I run into uh, agencies and investigators who are embarrassed about the state of their case and what has happened over time. And it's like, you know, we can only work with what we've got now. You know, yeah, we can criticize maybe things that happened in the past, but fundamentally now we just need to focus in on what exists today. And, uh, you know, the first thing that I tell cold case investigators is, you've got to audit your evidence, find out what still exists, what's been destroyed, what has been done over time to this evidence from a forensic standpoint, because each time using older technology, a forensic scientist goes in to, let's say, a sexual assault kit, they're consuming evidence. So you may say, oh, I still have the evidence. And then that's submitted to the lab and the lab opens it up. And that swab is down to a stick because all right. the cotton material has been consumed from subsequent, you know, previous testing. So luck plays a part. And, and that's the unfortunate thing is in, in your Washington case, luck worked on their side. Right. There are cases in which the luck, the luck has run out and it, that's just, it's, it's so frustrating, but you can't, you can't reconstruct that evidence once it's gone. Okay. Well, that's a perfect segue to my next question, which might be a little technical, but it's one thing that I have not understood, which is um, they talk about consuming the entire sample, you know, and you, when you say, um, you know, there's blood on a dress and you you take the the scraping of the blood and you get a DNA profile out of it. Um, why does it matter if the sample is consumed if you've gotten a profile? Is that because you want to save something for future technological advances in DNA testing? Yes, I mean, that plays a part. Um, and, you know, first is that, you know, law enforcement 
at times will completely consume a sample if that's what it takes in order to you know maximize the potential of getting a good result. Um, so and it, it and what I'm finding because you know I was so California centric in my career, but as I move around the United States, you know, I'm finding out there's some states that have laws that prevent law enforcement from consuming samples. Okay. Um, and, and, and in essence, it's like, well, that kind of basically handicaps law enforcement. They may right. have the ability to solve the case if they consume the sample, but they're not allowed to consume the sample. And so the case sits and they probably have to go get a judge, you know, get a court order to permit consumption. It's, it's kind of bizarre from my perspective. But fundamentally, when it comes to, you know, the consumption of the sample, it, it is going to be based on the expert's analysis as to whether or not that is necessary in order to potentially get a result. Because these experts know, okay, I, I, I need so much DNA, a, a DNA that is of a certain quality in order to get a good result. Well, this sample, when I do my DNA quantitation, my evaluation of the DNA evidence, it is right on the edge of being able to, to meet the sensitivity of the technology. And so they will advise the investigators, hey, this is what's going to have to happen. You've got a very poor sample. I think I can get a result, but in order to do that, I'm going to have to use it all. And once I do that, you won't be able to do any more testing. Right. And and we used to do this a lot, this evaluation, you know, back in the, the 90s and the 2000s, when DNA was first kind of uh, coming into labs and maturing as a technology, we as, as forensic scientists would take a look at the sample and go, uh, you know, I'm not sure I can get a result with the sample using the current technology. I try and I fail, then I've just killed the case. Right. So there are, there are there are examples where it's like, okay, even though we know we have a DNA sample here, we're going to wait because I know based on my education and, and my involvement in the professional field that there's newer more technologies coming coming up. Right. Now okay. the reality is at this point in time is that the technologies are so sensitive um, that I mean it's it's mind-boggling how sensitive the technologies today are. So the reality is, is that uh, the, the well, let's wait for something new to come down the pipe, isn't happening as much because really the, the technology is so mature that if we can't get a result with today's technology, the likelihood of being able to do it with anything coming down the pipe is unlikely. I found that I was, you know, reading, all, I read about true crime all day long because I obviously write a lot about it for all these different podcasts I work for. And I found that these articles would come out and they would say, you know, case solved, genetic genealogy, and they would name the guy and that would, there wouldn't really be any info. Um, and, it, you know, I found that I've just from a human psychology aspect and a law enforcement aspect, I found myself being curious about what the answers were about why, you know? So the goal of the podcast is sort of to try to get behind the scenes and answer not just who, but, but why this happened. Um, I'm finding that in many of the cases, it's very terrifyingly random, but in some of the cases, it's not. So if a jurisdiction identifies a killer using genetic genealogy, I'm curious about the law enforcement going in and reconstructing the life of the killer, even if he's dead, say, 
right? Uh, is there a mechanism now for, say, he they got him on a, a cold case in, in Washington, say, would there be a mechanism for contacting other states where they know he was and letting them know that they have this guy now and and how that how does that work yeah no it, you know and that is something that's that's been done for you know decades the reality is it's not just because of the genealogy cases but when an, an offender has been identified and there's a thought that this offender has other cases then timelines are constructed. And those timelines are constructed utilizing a wide variety of resources. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and you know, of course, there's the, the, the state criminal history for the person. You know, so you can see when they've actually been contacted by law enforcement within the state. Then you can reach out through and, and get their, their FBI rap, their FBI level criminal history where all states feed their criminal histories up to a national level. Right. So now I would go and reach out through, you know, there's, there's, there's a variety of ways to do it, but basically get their criminal history from other states. Now I'm seeing where they're being contacted. It's accessing LexisNexis, TLO, Accurate. Okay. The, you know, there's so many different ways. Google searches. You know, there's crime analysts that are very, very good at identifying, you know, where people have uh, lived, where they've worked. You know, in California, it was EDD. You know, we could get 10 years of their employment history hmm. uh, to help flesh it out, Uh reaching out to the various DMVs to figure out when they got their DLs, any, any traffic violations. So much information can be accessed in order to compile a very, depending on the individual, but some of these timelines are impressive. So we know exactly where this person was, in, you know, at, at, at times. Right. And then some, some people are ghosts, you know, they just don't leave much of a trail. And, and so you have huge gaps Right. So that, so it's good old fashioned detective work, even, yeah. even though they, they have the, the identity. Okay. Um, yeah. And that's, um, that's sort of my, my, my next question, which is, do you see a, a point where it, now that we have this ability, right? So we ha- we can use a genealogist to track, to identify somebody unknown from DNA at a crime scene. Do you see law enforcement now turning to that much more quickly versus good old fashioned detective work? I mean, it seems like a little bit of a shortcut to the same place, right? Well, you know, to give you an example, um, you know, with with Golden State Killer, you think about it is that uh, law enforcement spent 44 years trying to identify the Golden State Killer using traditional investigations, using the typical forensics work, you know, FBI's CODIS. And then it, and, and there was in total across the state, probably close to a hundred different investigators that had touched some aspect of that series. Right. Took a team of six of us four months using <laughs> genealogy. Right. Uh, so there, the, the, it is a tool. And it's that that's, you know, that's where will law enforcement utilize this tool when they need to? Yes, they will. And each uh, each jurisdiction, each entity is going to develop their policies and procedures as to when this tool should be utilized. You know, and and uh, at the national level, uh, the 
Department of Justice has come out with their draft policy on the use of uh, investigative genetic genealogy. Okay. You know, so that, that is outlining when and when it shouldn't be used. And then if you are use, utilizing it, what safeguards are, are put in place. And then out of the Golden State Killer case, the elected uh, DA for Sacramento, Anne-Marie Schubert, basically led the charge for the, the entire state on basically a best practices approach. She wrote out best practices that within her jurisdiction, her law enforcement agencies have to abide by. And, and that, again, is to make sure that this tool is being utilized on your most serious cases. It's going right. to be your homicides, your sexual assaults, or when there's an imminent public safety threat. Um, and, and the reality is, is that the genealogy process is extraordinarily labor-intensive. And though it, though it could be considered a shortcut, it does cost money and it takes a lot of man hours, especially if you don't get like a first cousin in right. the genealogy hit. Um, it's not going to be something that law enforcement is going to utilize on lesser crimes. You know, right. it's, they just okay. don't have the resources to do that. Right. And that's a perfect segue to my last question, which is, do you see um, maybe in big jurisdictions, this would happen more, but um, right now the genealogists are private services. I mean, almost exclusively, right? So, um, and they do cost a lot of money. I mean, one case I read, the genealogist spent 57 hours on identifying this one guy. That's a lot of time, you know? Um, And uh, there's so much involved. Do you see a point where law enforcement agencies will establish their own genealogy departments? Well, that's already happening. Uh, you know, so my former partner from Golden State Killer, uh, uh, FBI General Counsel Steve Kramer, uh-huh. he's got he's got a, a team that are very well versed in doing genealogy, and they're solving cases across the nation, and they hardly get any publicity. You know, they're they're not a private entity, so they're not out there beating their chest saying, "Look at what what we're doing." So here you have uh, FBI agents that are doing the genealogy. Uh, the Sherry Black case in Salt Lake City, yeah. that was by a an investigator doing genealogy himself. Now, he had assistance with Parabon, and then he, being in Salt Lake City, had a, a variety of uh, expert genealogists that I'm sure, you know, he reached out to for assistance. But I do think that fundamentally, there's always going to be the private side, even traditional forensics, there's private labs out there. But I also do see, especially with the larger agencies, you know, genealogy units being established. And it's not just the it's it's going to be people that are versed in doing the genealogy, but they also, you know, within labs at some point, the the the, the crime labs, you may see the technology, you know, start to come into those labs. Because right now, traditional uh, law enforcement crime labs do not do this DNA testing. It has right. to go these private labs. But this this uh, tool is pro- proven to be so revolutionary that I, I predict that eventually, once it kind of goes through a validation process and quality assurance standards are, are being met, that this technology is going to move within crime labs to at least produce that type of DNA profile. There will be the private side, but there will also be a public sector side to it as well. Okay, interesting. Well, let's hope so. 
I have to say some of these cases are really interesting and there is zero percent chance they would be solved without this tool. Zero. And I think that's what, um, that's what we are seeing. We saw it with Golden State Killer, you know, because once D'Angelo was found, all of us investigators, and even some of the online sleuths that I've talked to, we sat down. It's like, well, his name never popped up in the investigation. Right. And I know none of the active investigators, not, we, all of us said we never would have found D'Angelo on the courses that we were each on. Um, and I've heard an FBI profiler say that, you know, these guys, some of these guys that are being identified through genealogy on these cases, there's a new sort of a new category of offender. You know, a lot of these cases, when you look at them as an unsolved case, they look like this is a predatory crime. This is a mm-hmm. serial case. This is a serial killer. And so this person's either commit, committed crimes before or since. Well, there's a fair number of these cases that look like that, but now that genealogy has solved them and identified the offender, it turns out, no, they're one-offs. One-offs, yeah. They just happened to commit this crime and then never did it again. And that's that's very, that's fascinating to me. It's like, and, and this me is too. where I think, it's like, why? You know, it's now we need to, it's like a Mindhunter style interview of these types of offenders. What caused you to commit this crime? You know, did they have, were they fantasizing? Were they kind of on that predatory yeah. spectrum? And then they committed the crime. Did something scare them where they're going, oh, I'm not going to do that again? Did they find they didn't like it? Was it distasteful? Did they, you know, feel shame? You know, for whatever reason, we need right. to study these individuals and then try to figure out of these other unsolved cases, which ones show characteristics of the one off offender versus the serial offender. Right. And that's exactly the perfect ending to this because that's exactly what I'm trying to do with this podcast and the Michelle Martinko case. I don't know if you're aware of that one in Iowa, but exactly the case, Jerry Burns, her killer is sitting in jail. Now he, he, he was a married man with kids. And it appears to be a one-off and it, it, he stabbed her 29 times. It's so bizarre. Um, and hopefully someday these guys will talk, you know, and yep. we'll understand them. So yeah, that's just it. And it's going to take some, you know, some experts, you know, experts of in interview and psychology to sit down and talk right. to these individuals to maximize the information we can get out of them. Right. All right. Well, thank you so, so much. I'm so grateful. I wish we got to meet at CrimeCon this year, but. Well, I'm sure I'm sure we'll be uh, communicating and running across each other. Yeah. You know. Time goes on. So it's perfect. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time. DNA ID is researched, written, and hosted by me, Jessica Betancourt. It's produced by me and Mike Morford of Abjack Entertainment. Music composed by Connor Betancourt. To contact us, you can email the podcast at DNA ID podcast at gmail.com or follow us on social media. You can find us at DNA ID podcast on Instagram at DNA ID podcast on Twitter and on Facebook at DNA ID podcast. Check out our other collaborative podcasts, Scene of the Crime and Missing Persons.